I'd ask you to bear with me this morning. I am tired. I uh, didn't get to bed till after 5 o'clock this morning. My mom was at the hospital. She is home, but uh, she broke her wrist. She fell and banged her head, but as far as we can tell, it's just her wrist. But uh, it was a long evening and morning, to say the least. So, again, please bear with me. If I fall asleep, you can just quietly leave. That's fine. What's that? Okay, you just cover me up and just turn the lights out. That would be fine. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning again as we enter into your truth that we will hear and that your spirit will be at work in us, reminding us of the truth, reminding us of your love, reminding us of your great mercy and grace. I pray, Lord, that in the short little section we will look at this morning that we will be challenged with our perspective on being in you and glorying in you and living in you and through you and because of you. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 11 again this morning. I mentioned two weeks ago that we are going to continue for three weeks in a row in the same passage. And this is the last week of that um, that three-week series. Two weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 26. Last week, we looked at verse 19. So we specified one, one phrase or one sentence in verse 19. This morning, we're going to look over at verse 23. So we had the overview and the major emphases, and then we looked at two subsets of the statement that Luke gives in, um, in the book, in, in the section, I mean. Luke is notorious for doing this, by the way, and I won't do this every time we come to it, but I want you to be aware at the same time that there are some really, really important statements made by Luke in the midst of a of a significant section with a, a, a central theme, he will make some offhanded, seemingly statements about things that are actually very, very important, and we need to identify those and look at those. Let's read the text, the whole text from 19 to 26, if we may, again, and then we'll look into verse 23 by itself. We'll connect it with the rest of scriptures, of course. Starting at verse 19 of chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year they met with the with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So verse 23 is our text this morning. And, and in fact, it's not the entirety of the text of verse 23 that we're going to look at, but one uh, phrase of verse 23. Let me read that whole, set, uh, whole verse again. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So we're, we're discussing Barnabas in verse 23. Barnabas had gone from Jerusalem. He'd gone up to check out what's going on. And um, he discovered, as we've seen in the text, he discovered the grace of God in full display. Is that not correct? The grace of God was clearly at work in Antioch. People were getting saved. People were being not just converted from death to life, but they were being what? Transformed. They were glorying in Christ. And so he rejoices in that in verse 23. And it says he was glad uh, that it was taking place, which to us it sounds like kind of a, uh, a kind of a cornball statement. He was glad. But in reality, it is uh, actually, it's not the text we're looking at or the, or the phrase we're looking at, but in reality for a Jew, this is a very important statement. Because in the Jewish economy, they historically look down on anyone who is not a Jew from a religious standpoint. And to be glad 
is a really radical statement for how they were historically. And so for him to be glad is an understatement to say the least. In any case, he's glad that the grace of God is working in them and they are responding to the grace of God. And what he does then is interesting. He, it says in verse 23, exhorts them. So he's rejoicing that they are being saved, but he does something else. He goes beyond and he begins to what? The word actually literally is exhort them, but in, in our modern vernacular, what he's doing is he's encouraging and ministering to them, right? He's not leaving them where they are. If I may just say this, this isn't the, our, our primary focus here, or even a secondary focus. I just want to mention it. It is interesting that, that the emphasis here by Barnabas is to exhort them, to minister to them. Which, I've got to be honest with you, generally speaking, is somewhat of a foreign concept in the church today. And I'm just going to stop on this for a second and then move on. It's somewhat of a foreign concept. I remember, I think I shared this with you a little while ago, but I remember when I was up at Word of Life, and, 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 and the idea after someone got saved was just fourfold. Read the Bible, pray, or was it threefold? Read the Bible, oh no, fourfold. Read the Bible, pray, um, tell someone about it, go to church. That's what you told someone who, who had recently gotten saved. Is that ministering in someone's life? That's not even close, is it? I mean, it's not even close. And when you read the book of Acts, what do you find? When people are getting saved, what's happening? On the one hand, they're craving to be together and study the Word, right? What did you say? They're being encouraged mutually and by the leaders of the church. They're being ministered to on an ongoing basis, aren't they? Really important. Today, evangelism is basically, it's interesting, evangelism is totally separated from, in most churches, from the idea of, what's the word we use today? Discipleship, right? It's totally separated, as if they're not connected in any way, form, or fashion, but the realities in the scriptures, one immediately becomes the other. Immediately. Where I'm telling someone about Jesus, they repent and believe, and immediately what takes place? Discipleship. People start pointing people to Jesus. Wait a second, but they were pointing people to Jesus. They got saved, right? Yes, and so they just continue doing the same thing. There's one exception. And the one exception is the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? He gets saved out there on the road, and immediately God takes who away? Exactly. He takes Philip away, and Philip travels about 200 miles north after he arrives somewhere else, and he goes up the coastline back home again, ministering all the way. But outside of that exception in the book of Acts, what happens? They minister to one another. They're being exhorted. They're being ministered to. They're being pointed to Jesus. Because you see, what is evangelism different from discipleship? It's really not. The first step of this, if you want to use the term discipleship, is what? Evangelism. I mean, Matthew 28 says what? As you're going, make disciples, and it says make disciples by baptizing them, and I would argue that word baptizing in Matthew 28 is focused on evangelism, not dipping them in water. It's focused on evangelism, baptizing them, and doing what? teaching them to, uh, to follow all I've commanded you, right? It all goes together in what? Making disciples. Whether it's, whether it's start, I'm talking to an unsaved person, I'm starting with evangelism, I'm doing what? I'm, I'm trying to make a disciple of Jesus. If I'm talking to a believer, like Ken, he's within spitting distance here, I'm going to talk to him about being a disciple. In other words, I'm going to be talking to him about Jesus, right? I'm going, to be, I'm going to be explaining all that God has declared. Whether they're not saved or saved, I'm doing what? I'm proclaiming to them all that God has said. And knowing at the same time, Matthew 28, that he'll be with me always to the end of the age. Correct? And what we do today is we separate it. And so someone gets saved and, well, that's my job. And then somebody else will decide, no, that's not what the scriptures say. That's not how it works. That's not what happens. Now, we're going to find out in just a second that it's not 
the idea of, well, God commanded, so i got to do it. something really different, and it, we'll see it in just a second. But I just want you to notice that. Again, when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all, and he exhorts them in several ways. Number one, to remain faithful to the Lord, and then he throws in with steadfast purpose. We're going to talk about both of those in just a second. And we're going to unpack them. That's where we're going right now. So first we'll start with the first statement. Verse 23, to remain faithful. He exhorts them all to remain faithful. He exhorts them all. He's speaking to people who have just gotten saved, have recently gotten saved, maybe even the very day he's there. And so he sees it all happen. He's ministering to people, saved and unsaved. People are getting saved. And he does what? He's glad, and in his gladness, he exhorts them to remain faithful. Right? That's what it says. He exhorts them, and the idea here is an ongoing, as long as he's there, he just keeps on doing what? Exhorts them to be faithful. He keeps on exhorting them to be faithful. There are people there who have been saved for quite a while. There's people who just recently got saved. All of them, he's exhorting them, what? To remain faithful. Now, why would he spend his time in his rejoicing time, exhorting them or encouraging. It's a very, it is, the word encouraging is, it, it's an idea, but it's a very strong encouraging. It's a very strong, because some of the translations translated exhorting. Why would he spend his time doing this? Yes. Be after it today while it's still today. Isn't that what Hebrews says? Is he not encouraging strongly or exhorting the writer of Hebrews, the reader of the book of Hebrews, and do you sense the earnestness there in the statement from Hebrews? Do you sense the intensity of it? Do you hear it? Be after it today. And elsewhere in Hebrews it says, it calls the reader of Hebrews to minister to other people to watch out for others in the church as well so that they don't get a cold or what? Hard heart. It's two different verses, two different chapters. A cold heart or a hard heart. It's there clearly over and over and over again. We just went through Hebrews. There's, there is an encouragement, but it's an exhortation, and you sense an earnestness in it. Don't you? Today, while it's still today, day after day, that's the idea. And what does Barnabas do here? That very thing. He's after it. You get a sense in reading this verse, verse 23, that for Barnabas, time is short. Don't you get the sense? Just in this verse, he's rejoicing, right? He's glad. But you get the sense that, that on the one hand, for Barnabas, he's thinking time's short. Not just physical time for him before he leaves, but just time is short. And so he's exhorting them to remain faithful, strongly encouraging them to remain faithful. And faithful means what? Well, if we're going to talk about faithful, we have to understand it in its contrast, don't we? He's calling them to be faithful to the Lord, but in his calling them to be faithful to the Lord, it means what? Don't be faithful in the negative to, to anything else, right? To anything else. Or to put it a different way, you could say it this way. Be after having a heart that is inflamed for Christ today. Right? So it means. That's what faithfulness means. Be after it. Let me shorten the time frame up because I said today. Be after it right now. That's what Barnabas is saying. Be after it right now. After what? Having a heart that's hot after God, after Jesus. Now. Right now. And in the negative, be after today to make sure that you don't have a flicker that's starting to build into a hot flame for something else. Not about you. But I know, actually I do know about you. <laughs> My heart has a natural bent to feed the fire for faithfulness to other things. Isn't that you too? 
My heart has a natural bent. It's gross. John Calvin said it so clearly when he said the heart is a factory of idols. It's always manufacturing idols 24-7 for us to have a fire after. A burning after, a commitment to. A giving ourselves over to. And what Barnabas says to these new and older believers in verse 23 is to remain faithful. So two things I just want to say about this point right now before we move into the main point of the text that I want to mention that I think is important to get is it is interesting that one thing I didn't mention so far is a word that Barnabas uses to these believers. It's an interesting word. And it comes right before the word faithful. You see what the word is? Remain. Which, which means what? That they are. Right? This is not become faithful or be faithful. He's telling these, these anywhere from right, right recent believers to people who are believers for a while... He's telling them what? Remain faithful. And the idea is, that's who you are. Don't wander. It's, a, it's actually a really interesting and important picture of what we've seen throughout the Scriptures. And that is, when the Spirit moves in people's lives, what happens? They're changed, right? They're changed and they continue to change, right? Right? We can't just say that they will change, but they have changed. Now, certainly we have to recognize the four soils, right? There's change going on in at least two of the soils, but what happens? Tom, you and I have been talking about it recently. It dies off. Yes, absolutely. You have two of the soils. One of the soil, nothing ever happens. The bird just take, takes the seed away. But in the second and third one, the second, third seed that falls on the soils, what happens? It starts to grow, and different things happen, but the end result is, as the term you use, it was ineffectual. In other words, the effect wasn't there. It didn't remain. If I use the axe term here that Barnabas used, it didn't remain. It just didn't. It had evidences of Christianity. It had evidences of loving Jesus. It had evidences of faithfulness for a short period of time. But then because of the cares of the world and this and that and something else, it waned until it was no more. Isn't that what happened? Proving that it wasn't true faithfulness, right? And they truly weren't believers. As First John says, they left us to prove that they were not of us, because if they would have been, if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they left to prove that they were not. A really important concept that John presents there, and, and it's hinted at here as, as Barnabas from the opposite side is exhorting, strongly exhorting those who have claimed Christ, turned to Christ, been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they remain faithful. Now, it's interesting where he goes from here, and this is the part that I find most intriguing. Again, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's interesting, that's the ESV translation, with steadfast purpose. Um, let me just say right off the bat that I, I'm, I'm not real pleased with the translation with steadfast purpose. Um, I know what the King James says. I looked at Jim's this morning, and uh, the King James, I think, got it exactly correct. Uh, does anybody else have a different translation besides besides um, ESV or King James? What do you have? Firm resolve of heart. Firm, it's closer. That's good. That, that's good. Purpose of heart. What translation do you have? Okay, that's that's a good one too. Um, anybody have an e NIV? I didn't look at the NIV. Anybody have it? All their hearts. Okay, good. The interesting thing, when you read what the ESV, and I think the NAS translate this way as well, 
if I remember right, in end of 23, it's with steadfast purpose, which it, I'm not saying it's wrong. What? Oh, resolute heart. Okay, okay resolute heart. Okay, so ESV is the only one that I think muddied the waters. And I was saying to Jim, I don't think it's wrong what they said, steadfast heart, but I just don't think, I think it muddies the water. Um, let me explain why, and then I'll talk about what it really is meaning. When when the ESV, English Standard Version, translate, translates it with steadfast purpose, the word purpose is right, but when it translates with steadfast purpose, it sounds like something that, especially in our Christian culture that we're in, it sounds like something that isn't correct. I'm not saying that, that the ESV people meant it this way. I'm just saying it sounds like something that's not correct. With steadfast purpose gives you an idea of something that I would disagree with, and that is this. Do your best. Try hard. Or maybe even try this one on for size. Follow the New Testament law that God has given about obeying. That's what it sounds like. That's not, that's not what's being communicated there. It, literally, it's not. But, but that's what it sounds like, and that's where our hearts automatically go to. If we're not careful, steadfast purpose, I've got to try harder. I've got to work harder at it. I've got to do better at it. Isn't that what it sounds like? That's what it sounds like to me. And I would say that that understanding of the text is not correct. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that the translator's ESV meant it that way, but I think that that's missing the point. The point, I think, is much more dramatic than that and much more important than that. At several levels, it's much more important. So, again, it says, with steadfast, he's exhorting them to remain, remain faithful with steadfast purpose. And again, the word purpose is correct, but steadfast, I think, I think we, ought to, we need to unpack that a little bit more. But faith, it almost sounds like faithful and steadfast are in conflict with one another. Be faithful by doing well. Be faithful by trying harder. Well, those are in absolute contrast with one another. They're, those two, I would argue, are, are at war with one another. The actual understanding of the text, could you read your King James again to me, uh, to everybody? Yeah. Yeah, with purpose of heart, they would cleave or cling to the Lord, right? Um, and I think that the King James got it absolutely correct uh, in the text here. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The idea is the word steadfast literally in the, New, in the Greek is heart. Cardia is the word heart. And, and so the literal understanding of the text is not steadfast purpose, it's heart purpose. With heart purpose. So, in other words, remain, he's exhorting them to remain faithful to the Lord with heart purpose. That's the most literal translation you can get out of it. Which, in our way of thinking in English, that doesn't sound real correct, does it? It sounds kind of weird with heart purpose. Well, the word heart is mentioned throughout the New Testament. It's never mentioned literally. I just want to say that. It's never mentioned literally, as in the pumping organ. It's always more metaphorical. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting that, like, for example, love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? That's where it is. It, it's a good example of love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, and, and then elsewhere it talks about it in a variety of other ways, but it, the word heart shows up again and again. Here, again, it is remain faithful. He exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with heart purpose. Why does he say with heart purpose? It's an interesting phrase. Remain faithful to the Lord with heart purpose. What is he trying to get across there? Well, we could say it in a variety of ways. If, if I could sum it up, what he's saying is, be faithful, remain faithful to the Lord. We sing a song about it once in a while. From the blank out. 
from the inside out. You've heard the term before, right? You've heard we've sung the song numerous times. You're from the inside out. The, the idea is what what Barnabas is saying here is be faithful to the Lord from within. From within you, from within your very being. Now that's in contrast to what? Trying harder or just being legalistic, right? It's an absolute contrast to being legalistic. Just God says it, so I've got to do it. God says don't do it, so I better not do it, right? It's pure legalism. But instead, what Barnabas says, from the heart, with heart purpose, Remain faithful. Now, what does he mean by that is the question. From within, what does he mean by that? And by the way, when he talks about a heart, he's not talking about your emotions. That's what a lot of people say today. Talk, oh, he's talking about your emotions there. No, he's not. Yeah, actually, literally, the, the word is more talking about here than here. Um, but the idea is not about about loving God with your emotions or being faithful with your emotions. Instead, quite to the contrary, it's more talking about the essence of who you are, how you think, what, what captivates your heart, what captivates your thinking, what captivates your, 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 your modus operandi, what, what captivates you. Be faithful in there. Now, we've got to expand that out even further and understand even more what he's talking about. In context of the entirety of the book of Acts, what's the emphasis being taught? Obviously, we know what the theme is, right? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth, right? The end of the earth. But what are you being witnesses of? This is where it's key. What is... In Acts 1.8, what is Jesus talking about when he says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses of what? Him. Absolutely. It's him in his entirety. His coming as the perfect God-man and, and living a perfect life and taking on our sin, being our our... Um, stand in, taking our sin upon, uh, upon himself, going to the cross and absorbing the wrath that belonged to you and belonged to me, and then in, in accomplishing what he came to accomplish, he sets us in his place and gives us his righteousness. This is what he's called us to witness to in Acts 1.8. Him. And all that he's accomplished. Now, the point of Barnabas here, when he says, remain faithful with heart purpose, it's not primarily talking about evangelizing, and it's not primarily talking about ministering to believers. In fact, at best, it's secondary. His focus in saying what he's saying here about being remaining faithful with steadfast or heart purpose, it's about where your heart is. He's talking purely and simply this. Be faithful to remain with Jesus from within. Be faithful to pursue knowing and fellowshipping with and enjoying Jesus. I've said it before, but Jesus' high priestly prayer in, in um, John 17, he says, I pray not only for my disciples, but I also pray for those who come after. And he's talking about all those who receive the message of the gospel and who are saved including you and I. He prays for you and I there. And he says, I pray that they will keep all the commandments. Is that what he prays? No. That they'll do, real, they'll do everything right. Is that what he prays? No, you know what he prays? That they will know you, the Father, 
and that they will know the Son who you've sent. So he prays that the believers who hear the gospel, those who are transformed by the gospel and are captured by the gospel and are saved, will know in the most intimate way the Father, and that they will know in the most intimate way the Son. Now why does he pray that? This is really key. Why does he pray that way? Especially we understand that in the New Testament, we have a boatload of passages that give commands, don't we? I mean, all you got to do is open any epistle and you'll find them. You get to the end of the epistles, you'll find commands everywhere. Don't you? Well, yeah. Why does he not pray about the commands? Why does he pray about knowing instead? That's a really important question. And it ties directly into this. Because what, what Barnabas is talking about, what Paul talked about, what Jesus talked about in his prayer, his high priestly prayer, is all the same. And it's summed up in knowing. Intimately. Fellowship. Intimate fellowship. And what's interesting, the scriptures argue that the intimacy of knowledge and the intimacy of fellowship if I may use a term, go back to where we were with the four soils, that intimacy of fellowship, that intimacy of knowledge, of relationship, ends up demonstrating itself as the fourth soil. Doesn't it? It ends up being the fourth soil. The evidence that I know intimately my Redeemer and the evidence that I intimately know the Father who He sent, I'm sorry, the, the Son who He sent, and the Father who sent Him, the evidence that I know that way is what? That I grow up and what? Be change and bear fruit. And then He prunes me so that I bear much fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. And so what in the world is Barnabas focusing on here? When he says in verse 23, he's glad and he exhorts them all to remain faithful with the Lord, or to the Lord, with hard purpose, what he's calling believers to, these believers in Antioch, and by extension, all believers everywhere, is to remain faithful in your inner person, who you really are, in fellowshipping with, in knowing intimately, in enjoying, in, in drinking at the fountain of living water and keeping on drinking, in eating the bread of life and keeping on eating, in knowing Jesus Christ, knowing God. And you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen is exactly what God has designed to happen. As we know Him, the result is going to be, as we fellowship with Him, as we spend time with Him, as we, as we just said, continue to drink at the fountain of living water, and as we continue to eat the bread of life, as we continue to enjoy Christ and learn of Him. You know what's going to happen? Fruit will show. What will begin to happen is we will not be able to contain it. Nor would we ever want to. What will begin to happen is we will. We will proclaim Christ. We will minister to one another. We will find that we will, in a greater and greater and in a growing way, begin to find ourselves doing what? Desiring to obey God's commands. Hating when we don't. Repenting when we don't. And we'll find ourselves pursuing Jesus. And it changes everything. Too often in Christianity, we've got this actual idea that's 180 degrees out of phase. And that is, if, if only I will do what he says, I will love him. If only I obey him, then I will love him. And it's 180 degrees out of phase. All we have to do is read the Gospels, you know that's the case. Didn't the Pharisees obey the law? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, not perfectly. Nobody could. But did they follow the law? Yes. How did it, how did, how did it work out for them? What did Jesus say about them? They're whited, whitewashed tombs, whited sepulchers. And what did he tell them? You're so busy scrubbing the outside of the cup, right? Is that what he said? You're so busy scrubbing the outside of the cup, what is he referring to? Yes, they're obeying. They're conforming to the law. But the inside of the cup is disgusting. And what's important, the outside of the cup or the inside? If, if, if you had to drink out of a cup, they had several choices of cups. One cup was beautiful on the outside, but absolutely disgusting and moldy on the inside. Or another cup was beautiful on the inside, and the outside was disgusting. Which one are you going to use? You can use the one with the clean inside, right? I know, Tom, you won't use either one, right? <laughs> there you go. But you get the point, right? Too often today, Christians are re regurgitating the same thing the Pharisees did. Thing that one will equate to the other. And the statement is true. One will, one will not equate, but the one will produce the other is true on the one side. Because Jesus said, if you clean the inside of the cup, what's going to happen? The outside is going to get clean too. <laughs> That's what he said. The point is, the inside of the cup is clean when we are what? Enjoying Jesus. The inside of the cup is clean when we're fellowshipping with Jesus. The inside of the cup is clean when we are when we are focused on knowing Christ intimately, and that's all done by who? The Holy Spirit at work in us. See, I don't need the Holy Spirit at work in me to try to keep the law. In fact, none of us need that. I notice I put the word "try" in there. Let me give you an example. Moving outside of of Christianity. If you see a cop on the side of the road, you don't need some sort of, of great relationship with, with the government in order to drive the speed limit, do you? Do you need any, any type of relationship with the government at all? Can you absolutely hate the government and still drive the speed limit? Well, yeah, conformity to the law. It's not even that hard, is it? You can even do it grumbling, grumblingly and complainingly. You can even go by the cop at the speed limit and curse him out inside your car. You may even roll down the window and scream curse words out of the car at him, out of the window at him, and still maintain the speed limit. So you don't need to have a relationship in order to do that. Does that make sense? Outward conformity does not demand a relationship. But on the other side of the coin, when it comes to Jesus in relationship and intimacy of relationship produces beautiful Christ-honoring conformity. It does. It doesn't mean it's not a war. It doesn't mean it's not a battle. But the real battle is not conformity. The real battle is clinging to Jesus. The real battle is knowing Jesus. The real war is fellowshipping with Jesus because our heart's still deceitfully wicked, isn't it? And that's why we have the exhortation. That's why. That's why in our church I've never pushed for an evangelism program or a discipleship program because I know what will happen. When we're in a relationship with Jesus and it's vital and it's intimate. You know what I'm going to want more than anything else? I'm going to want to talk to Ken about Jesus. Why? Because he's all to me. So I'm going to want to talk to, to him about Jesus. When, when I love Jesus and I'm intimate with Jesus and I know him and I'm fellowshiping with him, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to look forward to talking to other people about Jesus that, aren't, that don't know him. I'm going to look forward to it. And we all know that's true. Don't we? We all know that's true. If you step outside the scriptures, we know that's true. 
You see someone who, who, who just had their first baby. And you're enthralled. Right, Sarah? You're enthralled. And what do you do? In today's day, what do you do? You just start putting Facebook photos up, right? All of the time. And you do it because the law demands you do it, right? Of course. Because the love is within you and it comes out. And you and when 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 Elise was first born, you you found yourself talking about her all the time. And it hasn't changed, has it? You talk about her. And and then when she's got physical problems, then you talk about that too. And it grieves your heart, doesn't it? It grieves your heart. Doesn't that make sense? And it's a physical relationship. Isn't it? It's a physical relationship, an emotional relationship. How much more this amazingly intimate spiritual relationship between Jesus. That is the very essence of life. Because without Jesus, the scriptures describe us as spiritually what? Dead. And he makes us alive. And I'll say this, if I may, about Elise and Sarah. We can separate you two. You'll grieve if we do that. And she'll grieve if, if, if we do that. But we can separate them, can't we? And sometimes you are separated. And sometimes you like it. Because <laughs> sometimes you need a break. But when it comes to Jesus, we're grafted in. We're grafted in. He's the vine and I'm the branch and you're the branch. We're grafted in. And I'm like Elise and, and Sarah. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He never hires a babysitter. Does he? He never needs a break. That's how deep and abiding his love is. He's never disgusted with his children. And he shares his inheritance with us. Oh my goodness. And we can go on and on, can't we? Did you hear it in the songs we sang this morning? Lois picked them out, right Lois? I did not. How deep the Father's love for us. I'm just going to read the titles. How deep the Father's love for us. I'll read a little bit of it. How what? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond measure. It's true, you know. Second song. Lord, dissolve my frozen heart. Frozen with regard to what? Jesus. What's that? The work of the Holy Spirit. Dissolve my frozen heart. How? By the beams of love divine. That's exactly what Jesus' love does. This alone can warm, can warmth impart to dissolve a heart like mine. Oh, is that a good prayer or what? Isn't that exactly what we need? We don't need to do better. We need, we need, we need our frozen heart softened, warmed. His mercy is more. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. And oh my goodness, friends, that sum is vast. Isn't it? It is vast. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his Mercy toward me and you, if you're a believer, is more. And that more is not like one step more. It's infinitely more. What is Barnabas talking about? What Barnabas is talking about is this very thing we sang about this morning. This is where our hearts need to be. Our hearts don't need to leave Redeeming Grace Baptist Church and go from here and say, I've got to tell someone about Jesus. That's not where our heart needs to be. 
Our hearts don't need to be leaving Redeeming Grace Baptist Church this morning. It doesn't need to be, i got to make sure and not do blank anymore. i got to be sure I don't say blank anymore. Our hearts need to be centered where? On Christ. Our lives, our minds. That's where, and it's done by the Spirit, because I can't do that. That's where, like the second song, Lord, what? Dissolve my frozen heart. Dissolve my frozen heart. Because only who can do that? And no matter how much I keep the law of God, my heart will go from frozen to more frozen. It's almost as if my heart goes from in the fridge, in the freezer, to cryo frozen. And that happens. I just get harder and harder and harder. You know what the evidence is I'm getting harder? Because I think I'm doing okay. I think I'm doing well. That's the evidence I'm getting harder and harder and harder. Frozen and more frozen and more frozen. See, a, a dissolved heart, a thawed heart is one that says, Oh, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it says. It says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And Paul didn't say, I got to do better. He said, Who will set me free? And immediately he turns, Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? And that's how great our love for, I mean, that Jesus' love for us is, and his mercy towards us is, that he is drawing us and warming our hearts, thawing our hearts to love and worship him. If I could leave anything with you from this statement, I would say, the only thing I want to do this morning is exhort you and exhort me. Strongly exhort you and I. As, as the text says, I'm going to read it and fix it a little bit here. To remain faithful to the Lord, knowing Him, fellowshipping with Him, learning of Him, tasting and seeing that He is good, discovering His love, understanding and being reminded of in a greater and greater way, the depths of His love. The width and breadth of His love. With heart purpose. With heart purpose. And you know what's going to happen? You and I will go and make disciples. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that He's commanded us. Because that's what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does when He comes on, on us with power. His first work of coming upon us and His continuing and primary work of coming upon us with power is knowing Him, knowing God. And then from that flows all the rest. And that's what Jesus said when He said, and I'm going to close on this, when He said, drink of me and out of you will what? Flow rivers of living water. I love the picture. I've said it before. I love the picture. You're drinking. Picture a drinking fountain. You're drinking out of a drinking fountain. How much is flowing there? About a, what, about a quarter inch stream? Right? A quarter, maybe a, a third of an inch stream of water? Get the picture? Drink. Keep drinking, Jesus says. And what will happen? Rivers of living water will flow from you. He didn't say you must have rivers of living water flow. He said what? It will flow. Rivers. Out of this little stream, rivers will flow. What's the stream? Fellowship with Jesus. Enjoying Jesus. Learning of Jesus. And all that by the Spirit. And so, our first task, if I could give it this way, is to pray. And ask God to do what He promised to do. Because He promised it. 
ask God what he, to do what he's promised to do in our lives. And once again, we discover a little mini rabbit trail that I'll jump on real quick and then come back, that the way we pray is not that, is it? The way we pray is all sorts of other things. It's not this. Lord, dissolve my frozen heart. Lord, change my heart. Change the essence of who I am today, now, so that my life will be captivated by your life. That I will find the only satisfaction of my life is the vine that I'm grafted into. Because I know that if I'm not grafted in, I'm just a dead branch. A branch with no life that's worthy of only one thing being thrown in the fire. So change me. And if you're here this morning and you say, yeah, I hear all that, Steve, but I don't even, I'm not even a believer. Can I encourage you with something? The answer is still the same. It really is. The answer is exactly the same is to cry out to Jesus and say, change me. The scriptures tell us to repent and believe. For believers, the call is to what? Repent and believe. For someone who does not believe yet, what is the call? Repent and believe. It's always the same. I hated you, and by your Spirit's work in me, I want you. I desire you. Save me. And all who come to him will never be cast out. Amen? Let's seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We know, if we're honest, that we are people who struggle with frozen hearts. We get cold. We get weary. We get close to giving up so often. And there's nothing inherent in us that will change that. Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to move mightily in us. We ask you to transform us today. So that we will find ourselves saying that the things of this earth really do grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. You are a great God. You are worthy of praise. You are worthy of honor. You are worthy of, of our lives. You are worthy of everything. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Lord, I pray that you will move mightily in each one of our lives. Draw us close. Open our eyes and help us to see. Help us to see the absolute futility of life without you. The absolute emptiness of life without you. Change us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.